Now it's my pleasure to introduce uh, my colleague and friend and former student, uh, Mr. Brian Kelly. Mr. Kelly received his bachelor's degree from Thomas Aquinas College in 1988. He received uh, a master's degree from the University of Notre Dame and a PhD as well from Notre Dame in 1994. He has served as a research assistant at the Jacques Maritain Center at Notre Dame and as well was a teaching assistant at Notre Dame and also a Bradley Fellow there from 1989 to 1994. He's been a tutor uh, at the college since 1994. Uh, he's married as well to an alumna of the college uh, and um, they both are, um, were wonderful students in class. I had them both in class many years ago and they've been very dedicated and very loyal to Thomas Aquinas College. Mr. Kelly, as you might guess, is Irish, and he's a lover of all things Irish, and he could lecture you for hours about Notre Dame and Notre Dame's football program. <laughs> he doesn't discuss football, but he lectures about football, okay? <laughs> all right, so uh, please welcome Dr. Kelly, who will uh, lecture tonight on the discussion method at Thomas Aquinas College. Mr. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. McLean. Um, I am Irish. I've kissed the Blarney Stone eight times, <laughs> but I won't lecture for hours. Um, the discussion is a strange topic for a lecture. <laughs> and as the days of summer disappeared and little was written, I was tempted to take the suggestion of others and just ask an opening question and sit down and see what happens. <laughs> I was sorely tempted. Every time I mentioned the possibility of bowing out, Mr. Wadzinski looked so displeased that here I am. So thank you, Mr. Wadzinski, for keeping me on course. And thank you to the Henkels family. I chose to focus on the discussion method for several reasons. First, because I've always loved it. I loved it before I engaged in it because it sounded so attractive to my American sense of autonomy. In a discussion I could think of for myself without some professor telling me what to think. But this was not a balanced love, or rather it was a love of self rather than of the truth, a false pride that was opposed to real learning. I came, however, to love it because I enjoyed the give and take of the classroom. The sense that in a common effort, my classmates and I were on the road to discovery. It's exciting to run into a roadblock, to look at each other, to take stock, and then to work a way through the difficulties. So I moved from a kind of prideful sense of myself as a superior individual to a humbler sense of myself as a member of a community working toward a common good. But finally, I love this method and am indebted to it because through it, I was introduced to the wonders and mysteries of the Holy Scriptures, Euclid, Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, and St. Thomas. Through it, I came to grasp and hold as my own some measure of perennial wisdom. An additional reason that I have to love this method is that I see it working for my students. Since my own experience with the method as both a student and teacher has been so overwhelmingly positive, I was led to wonder about this. Why does our method work so well? It might be suggested that it puts students at ease and creates an environment conducive to learning, or that it tends to lead the students to think about things in the proper order, or that it tends to arouse the mind of the student to think actively about the truth or that it tends to make the student more circumspect about what constitutes a coherent answer, or that it tends to make the student more circumspect about what constitutes a coherent difficulty or objection. On the other hand, someone might suggest 
that it merely appears to work because it tends to flatter the student. Such a one might say that it is because I myself have been formed in this method that I think I see success when I see students conforming to my own intellectual habits. I certainly am aware that our students do not always make an easy transition into other programs with other modes of teaching. When I went to graduate school, I followed other graduates. Several of the professors had less than glowing things to say about TA Sears. Was our method of teaching in some way responsible for this reaction? This is worth thinking about, too. Regardless of my personal love for the discussion, I think that it is worthwhile to pause at the beginning of the school year and think about our method. We are gathered in this beautiful setting, not to enjoy the wholesome mountain air, but because we love the truth. Not just the truth that we have already acquired, but also the truth that we pursue. We want to get the truth. And as the hunter wants to have the best equipment, we want the most efficient means of attaining our goal. We should think about this then. Are we using the right method? If it is more efficient to listen to a teacher unfold the truth for us, then we should consider changing our approach. Or you, the student, should consider going elsewhere to a place more conducive to learning. There's certainly no shortage of critics of our method. Perhaps the most common objection is that it is the blind leading the blind. Students, by definition, are the ones who do not know. It seems strange, then, that they're the ones talking. Since they do not know what they are talking about, the discussion is bound to be messy and inefficient, wandering frequently from the point and treating the subject matter in a most disorderly fashion. Furthermore, even if they stray into helpful territory, since they do not know, they might not even recognize that they've said something helpful. Now, our method might be attractive for many reasons, but is it really more efficient than the lecture method? When Mr. Wadzinski asks for a Friday night lecture, he suggests that the lecturer should aim for about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. In the history of the college, I don't believe that we've ever scheduled a class for less than an hour. One proponent of the discussion method insists that it requires at least two hours. And if we compare the amount of material covered in a 45-minute lecture with that covered in a two-hour discussion, I'm afraid we'd have to admit that much more was covered in the lecture. If you sat down after an hour-and-a-half class and tried to summarize where you got in the discussion, I suspect that the summary would take less than five minutes to read, probably a lot less. Four years may seem like a long time, but the seniors will probably tell you that the time has flown by. If you can accomplish so much more in less time with the lecture method, and all you have is four years to make a beginning, it might seem a grave error to opt for the discussion. Another objection is that the cumulative effect of using a sloppy and inefficient method is a habit of disorder. It is the case that the manner in which you approach intellectual matters day in and day out for four years will have a large impact on your intellectual customs. If you habituate yourself to thinking about important matters in a way which is messy, question-filled, and minimally productive, it seems very likely that you will be cultivating a disordered and skeptical bent of mind, or what is perhaps the fruit of skepticism, an unreasoned dogmatism. But if these objections can be answered, and this approach is the right one for our purposes, as I will argue it is, then just as the hunter wants not only to have the best equipment, but also to understand it so that he can use it properly and efficiently, it is beneficial to think about our method so that we can proceed to use it in the best manner. So it's worth our time to think about this matter. But how will we proceed? First, I will take some time to clarify what I mean by the discussion method. Is it best to describe it as teaching by conversation? 
Is it most accurate to call it the Socratic method? Secondly, I will propose ways in which our approach is beneficial for our purpose, that is, for helping young minds to make a beginning on the road to wisdom. Finally, I will test my thesis that this is a beneficial method for us by looking to St. Thomas. So first, what is the method? We at the college did not invent the discussion method. We owe a great debt to those people and institutions that helped us to see that this approach was feasible. Here I should mention and acknowledge St. Mary's College at Moraga, the University of Chicago, and especially St. John's College, which is in many ways like an older brother to us at Thomas Aquinas College. I'd like to take as a jumping-off point a text from many years prior to the founding of our college. In 1940, Mortimer Adler, William O'Mara, and Father Belperch introduced the discussion method to the American Catholic Philosophical Association by way of a brief talk and a sample session with undergraduates who had read portions of Aristotle's metaphysics. They described the method as having two distinctive characteristics. First, the use of a great original philosophical work in place of a textbook. And second, a dialectical process toward the formulation of philosophical problems and solutions in place of the dogmatic exposition of achieved conclusions by lecturing. Now, it's obviously important to the discussion that it be about serious and worthwhile things. Taking the great books as guides is vital, but presupposing this tonight, I'm more interested in the second characteristic, that is, the dialectical process rather than the use of a great text as a springboard. In their account, Adler, O'Mara, and Belperch stress the importance of vigilance. The instructor, they say, must resist the urge to tell the students the answer when getting them to think for themselves becomes difficult. They suggest that the procedure is best described as a Socratic dialogue, except that here there is a commonly read text serving as a basis for the discussion. I want to take a little time to think about whether this description of the procedure as a Socratic dialogue is really accurate. And certainly, Socrates is an important touchstone when thinking about the discussion method. If the method is that of Socrates in the dialogue, then it seems strange that an association of philosophers would need to be introduced to it. Presumably, they would all be very familiar with the dialogues, thus they would not need a sample seminar. The question as to whether or not the discussion method is the method of Socrates in the dialogues is somewhat pressing, since our method here at Thomas Aquinas College is often described as the Socratic method. Do we use the Socratic method? Do we aim to have our meetings look like Socratic dialogues? In several important ways, it seems to me that we don't. First of all, we want our students to make real and tangible progress toward the truth. In many of the dialogues that we read, it does not appear that Socrates' interlocutor has made any real progress. I don't think that Mino has arrived at the truth by the end of his conversation with Socrates. It's clear that the slave boy, on the other hand, comes to grasp how to double the square. And perhaps the slave boy is the ideal Socratic interlocutor. If we look at the Gorgias, which Dr. Dillon talked about in his opening uh, address on matriculation day, we do not see the interlocutors arriving at or grasping the truth that Socrates is proposing, focusing on Polus and Callicles in the Gorgias and Protagoras from the dialogue named after him. The exchange seems even to be antagonistic either from one or both sides. Many of the interlocutors seem to resent Socrates' questioning, as though he is subjecting them to an unfair and harassing cross-examination. Even Socrates, in the Gorgias, describes the discussion as soliciting testimony from a witness. Mino is frustrated by Socrates' questioning and accuses Socrates of bewitching and beguiling him. He says... 
If you were to behave like this as a stranger in another city, you would be driven away for practicing sorcery. Nietzsche, many years later, will call the Socratic dialectic bad manners. I think it is clear that Socrates intends good for the interlocutor, but it's not clear that his approach is effective. We see instances of his interlocutors lapsing into silence to avoid perceived manipulation. If we think about the power of the dialogues, it seems that the dialogue is most effective not on the actual interlocutor, but rather on the hearer or the reader. Many of the dialogues are even told as remembered accounts from a hearer rather than as a simple narration of an event, as though the Socratic interrogation is most effectively presented when it is experienced indirectly, or as though the hearer must be removed some distance from the dialogue to be appropriately disposed to hear it. The symposium, for example, begins with Apollodorus telling a friend about telling Glaucon about a conversation that had taken place many years before, which he had been told about by Aristodemus. I'm not sure my calculation is correct, but it, it seems that the, Socrates, the conversation is third-hand, and it's clearly from many years past. And of course, the dialogues are great literature. The reader and the third-hand listener are not directly subjected to the Socratic scrutiny. They can enjoy the action because they suffer no discomfort or embarrassment. Even if, in reading it, you agree with a position that is overthrown, you are not the one summoned to publicly testify against yourself. You are not in the Socratic hot seat. Thus, the dialogues make great reading, even if they did not succeed in teaching. We aim to succeed in teaching without necessarily producing a script which we would ever want anyone to read. I've often been grateful that we don't allow recording devices in class. In this regard, it helps that it is a conversation among several, whereas the dialogues often consists of Socrates and one interlocutor. In our classroom, there are reinforcements. The glare is not so uncomfortable when you are around a table with many, though not too many, friends. If you are moved, to lapse into a thoughtful silence, there are others to carry the conversation temporarily. Here there's a gentler touch. It's easier to escape a false opinion when you can step aside and think, and when it's not always a matter of being shown up. It is a good thing to admit when you are wrong, but human nature being what it is, it's much easier to let go of an error when you are not required to say it publicly. In our discussion, you are free to be shaken by a distinction or an objection and to mull it over quietly. In the Socratic give and take, there's no escape. Our indirect approach and effect of the size of the discussion is less abrasive and smacks less of manipulation. I'm not suggesting that Socrates manipulates, but I get the sense that it feels like that sometimes. We might add that whereas Socrates generally directs the course and content of the dialogue, the discussion method leans more on the student to initiate questions and propose answers. To establish a contrast, I'll read a portion of Socrates' exchange with the slave boy. Socrates, tell me, boy, do you say that a figure double the size is based on a line double the length? Now I mean such a figure as this, not long on one side and short on the other, but equal in every direction like this one, and double the size, that is, eight feet. See whether you still believe that it will be based on a line double the length. Slave boy, I do. Socrates, now the line becomes, becomes double its length if we add another of the same length here. Slave boy, yes, indeed. Socrates, and the eight-foot square will be based on it if there are four lines of that length. Slave boy, yes. I counted, and Socrates had 104 words, and the slave boy had five. <clears throat> Hopefully, your experience of classes, classes this first week has been different enough that I do not have to belabor the point. In the discussion method, the tutor strives 
as much as possible to get the student to propose the right moves and to capture and formulate the right questions, difficulties, and solutions. These considerations would suggest that the Adler-Omera-Bellperch characterization of the procedure in class as a Socratic dialogue is not really accurate. Does this mean that our method is in no way Socratic? I think that this too would not be quite accurate. Our procedure in class is a conversation and it has in common that the participants must take responsibility for their own views. If the instructor teaches, it must be primarily by way of drawing the students to make the connections which correct an error or lead to a positive advance. Socrates is famous for speaking of his role as that of a midwife, helping others to give birth to their ideas by asking them probing and constructive questions. I think that the tutor will do something like this in class, and one's classmates will also. Although Socrates' image seems to presuppose that you already have the idea within you, that is, you are already pregnant with knowledge, and all that is needed is to bring it forth by giving birth. This, this fits with his notion of knowledge as recollection. We here don't think that the student already has the knowledge actually within him, though we do think that our reason enables us to move from what is already known to what is unknown and to be informed by reality. So even if the image of the midwife is problematic, we still think that the tutor helps the student and the students help each other to come to explicit knowledge. So in a way, our method is not Socratic. It's more direct, more student-driven, more of a common effort, and in a way, it is Socratic. It makes the students more responsible for his views, and it uses questions to draw out the consequences of these views to help the student arrive at knowledge. In fairness, we don't see Socrates in the same setting as our tutors, in a classroom with good-willed and studious lovers of wisdom. If we did, then we might very well be astonished at his ability to draw students into lively conversation. I think that's most likely. Returning for a few moments to the Adler-Omera-Bellperch description, we noted that they counseled that the instructor should resist the urge to tell the students the answer. Does this mean that the instructor will never suggest an answer? If this were true, I find it hard to see why there should be an instructor. Certainly Socrates did not refrain from suggesting an answer to the slave boy, at least in the form of a question. And if it were detrimental to the student to have the answer proposed by another, then it would be detrimental to one student to have another student propose the answer but it would be a very strange conversation if no one could offer any solutions to difficulties. If the instructor is a part of the conversation and the conversation is a common effort, it is unnatural that he could never suggest an answer. It would be reasonable then to take the admonition of these men as a general reminder that the tutor aims at maximal student involvement. So how would we sum up and describe the discussion method. Leaning on our forebears, we might say that it is a dialectical process toward the formulation of problems and solutions in place of the dogmatic exposition of achieved conclusions by lecturing. We might add that it involves a group of students and an instructor who aims at maximal student activity. By this latter clause, I'm trying to say that the tutor wants the student to do as much of the work as possible. For example, if I think it's necessary that a certain distinction or a question be raised, I'll do it, but I'm always happier when a student does it first. This would distinguish it from what is often called the Socratic method used in other institutions where a teacher asks a series of questions with the students giving brief answers. Okay, moving on to the next session, section, I want to ask if the discussion method is appropriate for us here at Thomas Aquinas College. In proposing the merits of our method of instruction, I'll make four claims about it. First, that it's more efficient in that it makes the student more active in his own education. Second, that it is more personal. Third, that it makes the student more discerning as to how to make a good beginning at raising and solving difficulties. 
And fourthly, it helps to bring order to the mind of the student. With regard to the first claim, it's easy to see that the discussion method makes the student more active. But this does not, by that very fact, make it immediately more efficient. If we let monkeys loose in the classroom, the students would be more active. (laughs) There wouldn't be more learning going on. Likewise, when I try to teach my son mathematics, he's very active, but it's not clear that he's actively interested in what I'm saying. (laughs) By making the students more responsible for the carrying on of class, you make them care more about what happens and more attentive to the issue under scrutiny. This is a very important claim that taking responsibility for the discussion makes you love it more. I'll not belabor it because I think it's very obvious. You love more what you yourself have to care for. If you take in a pet, you have to feed and shelter it. Another way of saying that you have to take responsibility is saying that you have to care for it. Why do we say you have to care for it? The student who enters into the discussion is made more intellectually alive to the question at hand. This doesn't make the classroom procedure more efficient in every way. The lecture indeed can cover much more terrain in a much shorter time. That is, he can express more truth. But can he communicate more truth in a deeper and more lasting way? The lecture method only attends to the order and perfection of the activity of the one who is communicating, but the real work of learning takes place within the student. The lecturer is like the man leading the horse to water, but it's up to the horse to drink. To the extent that the discussion method brings the student to life, it improves the likelihood that what is there to be communicated will be received. At the same time, I, I don't want to denigrate the lecture method. It's a perfectly respectable mode of learning, but one that depends on a presumed perfection in the student, namely the ability to listen in a sustained manner and to hold the various parts of the lecture in mind. It's to help you develop this perfection that we insist on having occasional lectures. It's a very good discipline to have. What we've said gives us a way to answer an objection that we raised much earlier about the blind leading the blind. The objector proposed that our method is wrong-headed in letting the students take a kind of leadership and that the result is disordered and inefficient. Would it be wrong for me to suggest that this objection appeals mostly to professors long accustomed to lecturing? I think this is in fact the case. Years ago, a groundskeeper told me that the college would run a lot more smoothly if only we could get rid of the students. (laughs) And after a pause, he added, and the tutors. If you allow students to take the initiative, it will involve some messiness. Almost all learning is a messy process. The reason teaching is necessary is because of ignorance. And ignorance is a disorderly, mess-making principle. If you clean the process up too much, you lose contact with the student. If you make teaching too tidy, you lose learning. Perhaps it would help if we looked at a like situation. Here I'm going to use a very 21st century example of a therapist. When an experienced therapist is faced with a new client, in many cases, he could probably diagnose the problem and propose a course of action within five minutes or less. Then why does therapy take so long? If I'm right, it's not that the therapist is struggling to figure out all of the complexities of the case. The problem is that the therapist can't finally change the patient. The patient has to decide to change and make it happen himself. The therapist can only assist the patient in arriving at an active recognition of the sources of the problem and the actions necessary to deal constructively with them. The patient must be involved in arriving at the treatment or they will never act on it. 
The therapist must be prepared to listen a lot, to ask the right questions, and to bite his tongue often. Likewise, in teaching, the expert could probably sum up a semester course rather briefly, but he must move at the pace required for the student to actively comprehend. Giving an overly hasty explanation is like the therapist interrupting the patient to tell him that he's lazy and selfish and that he should get a job and quit whining. <laughs> Maybe perfectly true, but it doesn't help. So comparing the lecture and discussion methods, there are pros and cons. The expert could express more by lecturing, but the vigor and vitality of the learner is maintained better by discussing. A course would probably get much farther through a series of lectures, but what is achieved in the discussion is more really achieved by the student. And surely it is at the beginning of an endeavor that the foundation must be most carefully and deliberately laid. It's like when the chapel project was begun. I was astonished at the amount of time that was spent on the groundwork. Large machines spent an amazing amount of time moving and compacting dirt, and then moving and compacting that same dirt all over again. It looked like large mechanical toys in a sandbox. But the groundwork had to be just right, because the whole edifice was to rest on it. When I see the chapel rise higher and higher, I'm very happy that they took their time, the initial steps. So our method, which sacrifices quantity of progress for quality, is more suited to the one making a beginning on the road to wisdom. So we take baby steps rather than long leaps. Our feet stay closer to the ground this way. There'll be time for leaps later. The second claim is that the discussion is more personal. I mean by this that it's more directed to the individual student t students taking part. A great lecture might be given from notes yellowed by age, but it's not clear that it will address the difficulties of the students in front of the lecturer here and now. The student, by definition, is one who needs formation. It's not likely that the professor will be able to gauge exactly what level of formation and deformation the student has already achieved, that is, where his mind is or what difficulties impede him right now. Even if he should have thought of the student's chief difficulties, how likely is it that he can express it in such a way that the student understands that the professor is expressing his own difficulty? Often we are burdened by difficulties that we have not adequately articulated even to ourselves. And when the lecturer completes one stage of the argument and proceeds to the next, it's hard to know that the students have understood the first conclusion so that they can apply it in the next part of the argument. And if he pauses from his lecture to ask questions to see if they've really understood, he is to some degree leaving the lecture method and participating in the discussion method. In the discussion, the students themselves have to put into words their own difficulties and objections and conclusions. They articulate them as they come to understand them, and so the argument does not overleap them. Progress is made when lights go off in the student's head rather than when the lecturer decides he's said enough. So the discussion is more personal as opposed to impersonal in that it matters who the individual student is and the procedure in the classroom will likely look very different depending on what their personal difficulties or insights are. So I'm often surprised teaching the same course in the morning and the afternoon just how different the discussion is. Depends on who's in there and what their questions and difficulties are. And a small example of a way in which the discussion method can address your personal difficulties, um, I take from an experience I had when I was a student in senior theology. Um, something was proposed that didn't make any sense to me, didn't seem to fit the text. And I was able to ask about that. And what was said didn't seem to fit the text, so I was able to ask about that again. Now it turned out there was a very simple difficulty. I had a defective text. There was an extra not in it. <laughs> if there was a lecture, I just would have been flummoxed. 
As it was, it was cleared up quite simply by comparing texts. Thirdly, I said that the discussion method makes the student more discerning as how to make a good beginning at raising and solving difficulties. The student, with the help of the tutor, takes on the responsibility for making progress. This involves bringing forth for common scrutiny his own questions, difficulties, objections, and his own suggestions for moving forward. Even if this is done badly at first, and of course, like everything worth doing, it will be done badly at first, still, by practice and common effort, the group and the individual get better at this. So the student gets better at formulating difficulties that really pertain to the issue. He gets better at seeing how difficulties spill over into solutions. He does this by articulating difficulties or objections and testing them against the wisdom of his classmates and seeing how they stand or fall. Or even sometimes, the very effort of putting something into words somehow brings a solution to mind. The sophomores can reflect on the first reading in St. Augustine's on Christian doctrine where he talks about breaking the bread and in the very breaking of the bread, the loaves being multiplied. He says he's starting to write on Christian doctrine with a few thoughts, confident that in doing that, more thoughts will come to him. It's a very interesting text and something I've experienced many times. For example, let's take the principle of contradiction, which says that a thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Some people are uncomfortable with this and have the vague sense that it's not true. When you come to discuss it, and they have to put their objection into words, they might say something like the following, don't you have the experience of loving and hating the same person? Now that they've put their objection into words, they've opened themselves up for further objections, and it doesn't take much thinking to see that you might love and hate the same person, but not in the same way, at the same time, and in the same respect. When people speak of a love-hate relationship, they usually mean that they alternate between love and hate, or at least that they love some things about the person, but they hate other things about the person. More precisely, you do not love and not love the same thing in the same way at the same time. I've had the experience myself of no longer having an objection as soon as I've expressed it. And surely... The more experience the student gets at doing this properly, the more it becomes an intellectual habit. But it is not only the case that he will make progress in raising pertinent difficulties. The fact that there are several students participating makes it more likely that a broad range of difficulties will be raised. It is no small accomplishment to have a broad range of difficulties introduced into the inquiry, especially if they are thoughtfully and appropriately crafted. Seeing the variety of difficulties surrounding a difficult issue is vital to seeing how to get past the difficulties and arrive at the truth of the matter. If you are puzzled about an issue, it's kind of like being tied up. If you want to escape the knot that binds you, you would do well to examine it very carefully, looking at it from all sides. If you come to understand the knot well enough so that you could tie it yourself if you wanted to, you're much more likely to be able to untie it. If you're trying to decide whether a proposition is true or not, it's helpful to think of all the difficulties on both sides. It's like when we have opposing attorneys argue for opposite judgments. The idea is that by raising searching difficulties on both sides, the truth tends to shine through. So from our example above, take the love-hate relationship as an objection to the principle of contradiction. When I think about this objection and come to see why it does not overthrow the principle, I see more clearly why the principle must be true. I think this is why Holy Mother Church, when considering a cause for canonization, appoints someone to argue vehemently against proceeding. If they consider the difficulties raised by the devil's advocate, they'll be more confident that they're doing the right thing if they do proceed. The ability to raise pressing difficulties increases the chance, chances that the student is making real progress in the classroom instead of blindly leaping into error. 
The same thing holds for finding solutions to difficulties. If a question or difficulty has been appropriately clarified and the student offers an answer, the answer will be scrutinized by the class and it will be accepted or rejected. The exercise helps him to grow accustomed to answering fruitfully and the scrutiny of the class makes it more likely that he will be getting closer to the truth. So the practice of discussion helps to make progress in raising pertinent difficulties and asking the right kinds of questions and of offering the right kinds of solutions. I said, fourthly, that the method tends to produce order in the minds of the students. Beyond the fact that it tends to show forth and help him learn the truth, I'm thinking of two ways in which the method produces order. First, it habituates the student to submit to reason. And second, it fosters in him a respect for common experience as a proper starting point. A little while ago, I argued that the discussion was more personal in that it is addressed more to the individual. But when when I'm arguing that it accustoms the student to accept reason as a rule, I'm arguing that in a way it's less personal. Here, when I say that it is less personal, I mean that the discussion is not about the person of the student. It's about the truth. Students come to realize this fairly quickly. I've seen this kind of thing happen over and over. At first, the freshman, who's not used to the discussion, may bristle at being contradicted. He may be defensive in class, and it's unclear whether he's defending the position because he thinks it's right, or because it's his position, or because he doesn't want to give in to that person arguing against him. But with experience, he comes to see that his classmates contradict him, not because they want to oppose him, but because, like him, they want the truth. It sometimes takes a while to reach this level of comfort, but it helps when the opposition comes from someone manifestly on your side. This is one reason why it's so important that the discussion take place within a community of friends. We adapt among friends in a way that we don't when we wonder about the motives of those around us. It also helps when you work with the same group for a whole year and become very familiar with them and how to hear the things they're saying. I think it also helps to maintain a certain level of formality, calling each other Mr. and Miss. So, the more we grow accustomed to reasoned discourse, the more we have achieved a proper subjection of ourselves, our will, our passions, and our opinions to reason. This consideration helps to address a difficulty that was raised at the beginning of the lecture. Then... I wondered whether the apparent success of our method was in fact due to a kind of flattery. Something like this happens, for example, when children give performances and you praise them despite the fact that they really didn't perform as well as your words might suggest. If we had students present their views in class and told them all that their views were just as valid as everyone else's, then I think the objection would hold. This would be to flatter students rather than to teach them. But in the classroom, every offering is subject to critical appraisal. If a proposal gains assent, it is because it has seemed correct and not because we wish to validate the students' feelings or improve their self-esteem. I also said that the discussion fosters in the student a respect for common experience as a proper beginning. I should say a few words about why this is true and why this is desirable. To go far in the sciences, you need specialized experience. I'm thinking, for example, that you can't get far in chemistry without conducting experiments. Now, experiments give you an experience, but not a common, everyday kind of experience. So a specialized experience might tell you that water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. Everyday kind of experience tells you that water depends on its container for the shape it assumes, or that plants grow from seeds, or that I eat the bread and the bread somehow becomes me. You don't need special experience to know that there's cause and effect or luck and chance. You don't need special experience to
to know that men do not like to be told that they really don't understand a subject about which they have given many long speeches before large audiences on a thousand occasions. <laughs> thinking here of Mino. In the experimental sciences, I said that you can't get far without specialized experiences. However, you cannot even make a beginning in the sciences without common experience. Specialized experience will help you to come up with laws of motion. Common experience allows you to know what motion is. And surely you cannot begin to have a scientific investigation if you don't know what you're talking about. And surely, as you proceed to specialize, you don't want to lose track of the common experience which provides the very basis for your endeavor. So it's vital for the beginner to look to common experience to provide a sound foundation for his enterprise. Now the student, who is expected to discuss with his fellow students, is urged not to introduce outside sources. This means that he should not appeal to a text that the class has not read and discussed in common. For the freshman, this also means that it's not really desirable for you to illustrate your points by referring to popular movies. I probably haven't seen them, so. This also means that you should not argue for your point by appealing to a kind of experience that is specialized or peculiar. This would leave your classmates no resource to assess your claim. But this leaves in play the kind of experiences had by all. In fact, without appealing to common experience, you could not fruitfully discuss the text. Your discussion of the definitions of Euclid, for example, while it's not properly about bodies, presupposes an experience of bodies with their threefold dimensionality. So the confines and strictures of the discussion method invariably tend to make the student discuss and think about the starting points in terms of common experience, which is a very good thing for his intellectual habituation. For these reasons, then, because in it the student is more active, it brings to bear the particular strengths and weaknesses of the individual, it improves the student's ability to raise and settle difficulties, and it forms his mind with a proper orientation to reason in the world around him, I think that the discussion method is an excellent tool to use in making a beginning on the road to wisdom. It helps the student to grasp in a deliberate way sure founding principles. It helps to order his mind to the proper sources and it hones his abilities to wonder constructively. Now for the final part. In a school devoted to the mind and method of St. Thomas Aquinas, it would hardly be fitting if I did not pause to test my thesis against the words of our master. I won't look to find him proposing the discussion method. I don't think he does. But I will look to see if the discussion method is in keeping with what he says about teaching. And here just a personal thought about St. Thomas and the discussion method. I've often thought that it would be tough to have St. Thomas in class. In the discussion method, there's a real benefit to having a range of gifts and intelligence brought to bear in the discussion. But it has to be a compatible range. St. Thomas was once asked what gift he was most grateful for and he replied that he had understood every page he had ever read. I think that's astounding. I've always been amazed by this, but I think it would be difficult to develop and maintain a conversation when one student has all the answers and can lay them out with clarity and precision from the very beginning of class. On the other hand, he earned his nickname, the Dumb Ox, by his silence in class, so maybe he wouldn't say anything. So maybe St. Thomas is the perfect student to learn by listening to lectures, since he was so able to hear and understand what was said and to retain it in all of its parts. But for me, who has not his gift of discernment, I'm grateful to have been taught through the discussion. I'm not sure that I would have been able to make progress with Aristotle or St. Thomas in any other mode of teaching. Let's get back to our task and look at what is said about what he says about teaching. And here we might immediately be troubled. In question 117 of the first part of his Summa Theologiae, he speaks about the teacher leading the student by the hand. 
This notion of leading by the hand sounds much more like lecturing than directing a discussion. We might even say that in the discussion format, it sounds more like what Socrates does with the slave boy than what I have proposed by contrast to that. Let's look more closely at his words. The master or teacher leads the student from things which he already knows to things which he does not know in two ways. We're interested in the first way. First, indeed, by proposing to him some aids or instruments which the intellect uses for acquiring science. For example, when he proposes to him some less universal propositions, which the student is able to judge from what he already knows, or when he proposes sensible examples, or likenesses, or opposites, or something of the sort, from which the intellect of the learner is led by the hand to a knowledge of the truth which he did not know. I was trying to think if I could give examples to illustrate some of those different aids or instruments. And I was thinking when I, when I introduced the example of the therapist before, it was by way of a kind of likeness. So that was a way of using a likeness to try to help you see a point I was trying to make. Or I gave the less universal statement that the foundations of buildings must be carefully laid to help you understand that, um, that the beginning of any project it's very important that it be done deliberately and thoroughly. Or when I talked about Socrates, there I was in a way using a likeness and in a way using a difference. I was drawing comparison and, and contrast to show ways which were, what we do is like what he does in the dialogues and ways in which it's dissimilar to help us understand more carefully what we do. Okay. So, thinking about this text of St. Thomas, we ask, is the discussion method compatible with the notion that teaching is accomplished by these kinds of aids or instruments and that teaching is a leading by the hand? Now, the teacher makes use of these aids when he pays special attention to the actual condition of the student. That is, when he's attempting to connect the truth aimed at with the knowledge in the mind of the student. It's in keeping with what we said earlier that the experienced lecturer may have a host of less universal propositions or examples or likenesses or opposites in mind, but that the discussion method, sacrificing the order and efficiency of the expert, is at pains to connect with the actual condition of the student. The student speaks and reveals his knowledge and his ignorance. This puts the instructor in a much better position to give helpful illustrations. It's also worth noting that the students help each other here. Since they live with each other and are a community of friends, they know each other perhaps better than the tutor. Since they are more peers, they might be better equipped at times to give examples or illustrations that are more proportioned to their classmates. Above all, the image of leading by the hand emphasizes the notion that the leader and the led stay in contact. In this sense, the discussion method is an especially appropriate method of teaching, not just because it aims at a slower baby steps procedure, but also because the student is always free and is in fact encouraged to let the tutor know whenever he loses the thread of the conversation, whenever he loses grip. St. Thomas also speaks in this context of the teacher as similar to the doctor, here he's teaching again by way of a likeness, and it's worth thinking about this likeness. The body of a man is by nature inclined to health. When it functions properly, it is healthy or it's working to heal itself. The doctor recognizes this and works to support and stimulate the efforts of the body to heal itself. The doctor steps in when the body needs help, but he prefers above all to let the body heal itself. You'll sometimes recognize a good doctor by what he doesn't do. A lot of doctors want to heal everything by means of medication or surgery. But the good doctor sometimes, although he sometimes will prescribe pills or, or tell you you have to have surgery, understands that he's assisting the natural healing process of the body and sometimes 
rather than interfere, he'll tell you to go home and get some sleep and see how you're doing in a couple of days. Let the body do its work. Similarly, a teacher knows that the student is naturally inclined to want to know and to learn. He will listen to the student and find out what his condition is so that he can better assist the student in doing what he is designed to do by his very nature. He will step in when needed and get out of the way when this is more appropriate. This likeness, then, between a doctor and a teacher suggests that St. Thomas does not mean to oppose the discussion method, which allows the student to pursue the truth more actively. I also thought it might be worth looking at how St. Thomas actually teaches in some of his central writings. Um, And here I'm thinking of his dialectical format in the Summa Theologia and other places. Here, I should quickly summarize because not everybody's read St. Thomas. Um, He'll take up a question. And he'll ask the question. Then he'll propose certain arguments which fall on one side of the question that we called objections. And then he'll invoke some authority which causes you consternation about those objections, which goes against those objections. Then, as a teacher, he'll lay out the central argument. And then one by one, he'll take up the objections that were raised earlier and address them. Now, if you think about it, it kind of has the format of a discussion of sorts. Some people weighing in on one side and then somebody weighing in on the other side. Suggests that um, it's good to look at things from different sides and it does in a way smack of a discussion. Now, it might be an opinion, but it's also based on historical fact because this method of writing was based on public disputations of questions which were held in the Middle Ages where the uh, students would gather, a question would be asked, there would be one student appointed as a responder and other students would come up and raise objections. They would argue on one side of the position and the student would try to answer as best he could each of those objections. And then the teacher would come in and try to give some resolving sort of treatment of the question and, and, and so on. So St. Thomas's own mode of writing is based on that discussion format of a medieval dispute. And in fact, he himself took part in many such disputes. Finally, let us look at the advice that St. Thomas gives to Brother John in his wonderful little letter, which I passed out so that if I did nothing else for you, at least I sent you home with something. Here, St. Thomas recommends that Brother John enter by the small rivers and not go right away into the sea because you should move from easy things to difficult things. I argued earlier that the discussion method slows you down. You proceed by baby steps and not by leaps. St. Thomas's image here of small rivers seems to fit with the argument that it's more important at the beginning to do little and to do it well than to precipitously dive into the sea. So again, St. Thomas's words seem to fit with an approach that places less emphasis on quantity of teaching and more on quality of learning. But at the end of my reflections and the beginning of the school year, I find it comforting to think about this image of the small rivers or little streams. If we're aiming to make a beginning, we must take up the humble tasks before us. By wrestling with the definition of a sign, by learning how to make the equilateral triangle, by memorizing conjugations and declensions, we are entering by the small rivers. But small rivers flow into bigger rivers, and bigger rivers ultimately flow into the vast ocean. I've been at the college many years and have been colleague to my own teachers for long enough 
that some memories of my time as a student have probably faded from their memory. At least, I remember certain events that I hope that they don't. (laughs) I want to tell them tonight that I remember what they did for me and take this opportunity to thank them for introducing me to the discussion method and, more importantly, for helping me to gain a little window into the perennial wisdom of St. Thomas so that I might, to some degree, be freed from slavery to ignorance and to error. So I end with thanks to Mr. DeLuca, Mr. Kaiser, Ms. Day, Mr. Newmeyer, Father McGovern, Mr. Suzanka, Winfrey Smith, Mr. Berquist, Mr. McLean, Mr. Shields, Mr. Richard, Mr. Ferrier, Mr. Dillon, Mrs. Gustin, and Mr. MacArthur.